What's up, everybody? My name is Joshua Stein from the J. Stein Law Firm in Atlanta, Georgia, and welcome to the next episode of Sports and Torts, where each week we sit down with our peers, colleagues, and friends to discuss sports, law, and business. This is episode 18, and it brings with us a few firsts. Number one, we have our first medical doctor in the house, and number two, we're having our first conversation about golf. This is our Masters Golf Tournament preview show with my good friend, Dr. Sean Traub. Sean is an orthopedic surgeon who specializes in general orthopedics with a specialty in sports medicine. He is also the only person that I know who has played Augusta National Golf Club, has caddied at Augusta National Golf Club, and has attended the Masters as a patron many, many, many times. So he's a great person to have on today to talk with us about the Masters. Doctor, welcome to the show. Appreciate it. I'm super excited to be here tonight, Josh. You know, with that background, I imagine you're a scratch golfer, huh? I scratch off my score scratch. quite often, so people uh, don't have to see it. Oh, uh, so the pencil is the best club in the bag, huh? I that like and the it. foot wedge. That and the foot wedge. I love it. I love it. Well, look, man, good to have you. Uh, we're at my house. I like to set the stage, you know. Uh, we are drinking light beer from a commemorative Masters Cup. Um, we made some pimento cheese sandwiches, so we're enjoying that. Trying to bring a little bit of the master's charm here to the house. 100%. And uh, the sandwich was delicious. You know, it's so funny that the food, well, everything about the master's is incredible and, and, and noteworthy, but the food has like taken on a life of its own in terms of like everybody recognizes the food there. Uh, you've been tons of times. What, what's like, what's your go to order? So I think one of the first things is the prices, right? You know, you go to a, a Braves game, a big sporting event, and you're just getting crushed on the price of beer and food. The price hasn't changed there. You know, it's like a dollar seventy-five, or maybe it comes to two twenty-five a beer. Sandwiches are two dollars or less, and they take pride in that. They want their prices to remain static yeah. as they were years, years. Year they ago. want you to know they don't need your money. They don't need our money. They don't need our money. They still get a lot of our money. Yes, though. they do, but they don't need it. Um, so, you know, I get there early. And stay late, so I think the food changes to the day. I think I usually start from the egg salad pretty early on, work my way up. Um, when I first started going, actually, I think I was 13, the chicken sandwiches only came with one piece of bread, which I always thought was interesting. You can open you, your face, Sandy, huh? Yep. You now get two pieces, but the chicken sandwich is always delicious. Big fan of the barbecue. I get a pimento cheese, but I'm not a huge pimento cheese fan. See, I go the complete opposite way of you. Um, Pimento cheese, egg salad sandwiches are the, are the direction that I go. I got no time for the club or the other stuff. I but don't get the club, yeah. But, but, but it is great. And the beer is always interesting to me because they make a point to not even tell you what the beer is. Yeah, right? I mean, a, it's, 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 it's it says It says light beer. Dom, it says domestic yeah. Yeah. or import. Um, do we know what it actually is? Either a Miller Lite or Coors Lite, I typically think that is where they go. And yeah. then... I think that's right. I think I think it's generally in the Miller Coors family. Um, but it's you know when you're out there and it's you know nice April day, like it's t whatever it is, it's delicious. And I'll crush the ice cream eventually too. Oh, you go back afterwards for the yeah. ice cream? I know, this, not, I know you're not a sweet guy, but yeah, I'll get an ice cream or two. Okay, that's pretty strong. Now you're uh, you're 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 you have some knowledge about like the, the history of the club too. I mean, uh, I didn't say where you went to medical school, but you went to medical school in Augusta, um, so you know a lot about it. Um, give us the kind of you know, quick 30-second outline of, like, Augusta National's history. Sure. So I think it was actually founded in 1932 by Atlanta's own uh, Bobby Jones. Um, my understanding is he wanted a course, a, a course you'd be proud of in Georgia, in his home state of Georgia. 
Um, so when he got together, um, big New Yorker. Clifford uh, Roberts. Clifford Roberts. Um, and they came up with this concept to make a world-class course in Georgia where mostly wealthy New Yorkers were going to come down and play, didn't have to quite go down as far as Florida. And so I think when they came up with the plan and, and everything and, and designed it, the depression was breaking out. So I think it kind of changed how it laid out. It, it, yeah, and, and the land they found like a, a big nursery. Yeah, I think it was a, a nursery, um, a fruit farm, you know, you know, basically really hilly piece of property sitting there in Augusta. Do you think that they made better use of that piece of land? It's it's gotten it's done pretty well. So I always read that it was like there was a railroad, or the, you know, it went through from New York down to Florida. There was a stop in Augusta. Uh, that was a, a, a winter place they could play golf yep. in the winter. Um, I think you said something about the like type of greens that could could live there. Yeah, so yeah, the grass, greens there are, are bent greens, and the fairways are um, Bermuda of a rye, and it's a winter course, right? So the course actually opens mid October and closes mid-May. And so in the winter, it's, it's beautiful. It's green as can be. You know, when we were the caddies, we were actually the last people to get to play it every year. And you could already see, like, the fairies are starting to get a little darker. And then, you know, I mean, it's shut tight because it doesn't look that way in the summer. So this was going to be a winter course for the New Yorkers who didn't, make, didn't have to go all the way down the floor to the play. Well, thank God they did because it's my favorite sporting event of the year. I know that we all love talking about it. I think that it really took off as a golf club. You mentioned the depression, uh, kind of you know slowed it down. But I think when Eisenhower, President Eisenhower, started coming, like that, he, that gave it, you know, made it bona fide. And- yeah, I, I think you're right. I think I saw, you know, he was invited down in the '40s and just fell in love with it. Yeah, and, him and Clifford and, Roberts and be- were were tight from something. Well, very cool. We'll talk a lot about Masters. Uh, I want to talk about you know, your your medicine first, but before I do that, I just want to get this off the table. Uh, I'm not going. To, we're not going to talk any UGA football today. Um, there's no national championship talk. Nope. No recruiting talk. So I apologize. I hope you're not mad at me that I'm the recruiting talk that hurts because I'd like to come back when we want the recruiting dish and maybe next signing day. Yeah, we'll, we'll we'll do a recruiting show. I know that that's something that you really want to spend the full hour on, but I'm just telling you that, that not not in this episode. Fair enough. So, uh, introduce yourself a little bit. Talk about your family and where you're practicing medicine. Sure. So um, you know, grew up in Atlanta. Um, Went to UGA, ran track at UGA. Um, that's where we met and became buds. We actually lived together for a year. Um, from there, I went to medical school in Augusta and did my four years there. And um, it was a good experience. Not the best city to live in, but I think I made the best of it. And then I um, went and did my residency in orthopedic surgery in Charleston, South Carolina, Medical University of South Carolina. Um, my wife, Kara, now I've been married for 16 years. We got married my first year in medical, uh, sorry, residency, not medical school. So I did five years in residency there. And then I went and did a sports medicine, uh, and shoulder surgery fellowship at the university of Colorado, which was uh, half in Boulder, half in Denver. And we sounds like a really long time to become a doctor. So <laughs> yes, I'm so amazed yeah. how long it takes. Yeah, I now was you know telling this. So that's just, four years undergrad. Four years. Well, I did five years, but yes, five years undergrad, four years medical school, five years orthopedic residency, and a year of fellowship. So how old are you when you start working at Resurgence? I was thirty-one. Been in, um, been in, you know, been in college and then for 14, 13, 14 Wait, no, I was thirty-two actually. Sorry, when I started there. Um, yeah, and. It's embarrassing to say I did not know how long it was supposed to be. I don't know where I got this information when I knew medical school was four years. I thought you did a one-year internship 
and then, and then one year residency and you're done. So ignorance is bliss for you then, huh? Yeah. I think it was like day three when I was talking about that. And everybody's like, what are you talking about? You got a long way to go, yeah. brother. So were you one of these guys that always wanted to be a doctor? Like you just knew that was your path? I think it started in high school. I think uh, I really liked biology and learning about the human body. And I kind of thought that was pretty cool. I knew I didn't want to sit behind a desk. So I kind of thought, all right, this, you interact with people. You know, I get the standard answer. Oh, I you know, want to do good. And that's like the standard answer in med- medical school interview is why do you want to be a doctor? Because I want to help people. You know, but I think you go into that thinking that. Um, but I kind of was fascinated more about the human body, you know, the, how the systems work, the pathology, and how you may be able to help fix some of those problems and make a difference. In always want to be a surgeon? I did not always necessarily want to be a surgeon. Um, I think when I interviewed, and maybe this, I thought this sounded good, I told them I want to do pediatric oncology. I think I probably did a 180 from that. I went to orthopedics. Um, you know, I, I was always involved with sports and kind of thought that was interesting, but it was I think it's honestly like my first month in my first year med school. One of the orthopedic uh, residencies guy, um, Mac, I can't remember his Mac's last name, but there's a spine surgeon now in Tifton. He came and spoke to our whole class and basically said, if anybody ever wants to spend a day in the OR, here's my pager number. And I called him up and, you know, he said, yeah, let's pick a morning. And I followed him and some of the orthopedic guys for two OR cases, and that was it. Blood and guts never bothered you. Never got queasy because I, I'll be the first to admit that I couldn't, I wouldn't last a minute. Well, I would say no. Although when I was in high school, I got to go watch a surgery. Um, my uncle's a gastroenterologist, set me up with one of his buddies. And there's something we use in the OR called a bovi, which is cautery. And it just, you know, it smokes and it smells. And to me now, it smells like barbecue. But I wasn't scrubbed in, but that made me pretty nauseous. That was the only time, you know, blood and all that stuff doesn't bother my son Hudson, who's eleven. He can't look an X-ray. I mean, he thinks it's disgusting. You know, I'm on I'm on Team Hudson there. Yeah, there you go. I mean, I'm I'm always amazed that y'all can go in there and you've shown me some pictures of X-rays and different things you've done. I'm like, I I couldn't I couldn't do it. But but I want to go back to you said you ran track at Georgia, of course. Uh, what was the decision like to to choose Georgia? Uh, I know you had lots of options out of high school to to run track. How did you decide to go to Athens? Yeah, so um, you know, we you get five official visits. I think I actually only took four of them. I was supposed to go to UNC, but I took a official uh, track visit to University of Georgia, University of Texas in Austin, Georgetown, and University of Virginia. And um, I got down in my mind to UVA in Georgia. But unlike football, where there's like 85 scholarships, there was, I don't know if it's still this way, but at the time there's 11 men's track scholarships to fill a whole track team. So you get partials. And for UVA, it was coming down to me and actually one other guy, how much scholarship they're going to have to offer me. And I think when they came back, it ended up only being like a 25% scholarship. And then with UGA, basically I had hope and they said track will cover all the rest of it. And so I just kind of weighed back and forth, well, do I want, you know, was UVA that much better for me to take out student loans for the rest of it? And at the end, last minute, decided absolutely not. Hey, if you went to UVA, you wouldn't be a national champion right now. 100% not. You wouldn't be? You, no, you, be a double, I wouldn't feel like a double champion. Yeah, you're a double right champ, Bray, Bray. I loved everything about Athens. Yeah, uh, I, as did I. Um, is it Was it hard? I mean, of course, we were there at the same time, and, and I saw you go through it. But, I mean, the experience of going through a, a pre-med type of a curriculum living in Athens, like how does, and running track, uh, how, do, how does one balance such th- three, three things and yeah. be successful at all? Um, I think I kind of got, in one way I kind of got lucky um, because I ran track. 
Um, I wasn't allowed to pledge as a freshman, so I didn't do the fraternity, the fraternity thing. I think my mom was a little concerned what actually, you know, didn't want me to be a biology major. She's like, what if you don't go to medical school and you don't have this degree? So I started off as a business major and I was doing the sciences. So my freshman year, I did not take any of the general chemistry, biology. So I did that second year. And I think, honestly, that one year of a little more maturity to not, you know, go out and party as much as you do as your first year as a freshman allowed me to be successful there versus I think had I been in that straight out of high school General chemistry is first class in the fall. It, it, my grades might have not could have suffered. That makes total sense. So you kind of give yourself the year buffer to kind of figure it out, get some stuff out of your system, take some other courses, and then your sophomore year when you're the ripe old age of nineteen, yeah, you know you're but, you're, you're ready to take. Yeah, these but I had a on. year of Sky's Place done, so you know those nights were done. So God I bless Sky's yeah. Place. Uh, yeah, well, yeah, well, that, that's great. Um, and then you, know, you went straight to medical school at MCG. I did. So the, the medical school application process is, is different, really, than the law school application process in terms of, like, interviews and, and MCATs, and, you know, it's, it's very difficult to get in. Uh, talk about just that process of, of choosing medical schools, getting in, interviewing, all of it. Sure. You know, and I think there is a lot of similarity with, you, with law school. You're saying, you know, the LSAT and the MCAT. I mean, I don't know how many times the LSATs were offered a year, but MCATs, at least when we went through it, when it was on paper, it was twice a year. So you had two chances, basically, to get your scores. I think the first one was in May, and then maybe the second test was in August. Um, you ever talked about your, you know, being pre-med? It's probably like pre-law. There's no such thing. It's, it's, it's minimal requirements that they want to see. There's not like a pre-med major. So you had to have a year of general chemistry, a year of biology, a year of organic chemistry, and a year of physics. And you could major whatever you wanted besides that, as long as you had those four cores done. And then you could take your MCATs, which basically covered those four things plus a, a verbal. And so probably like we did, you know, I think I took a Kaplan review course that was like next to Georgia Theater the first time. And I think the first time my score was a little lower than I had wanted. I thought I studied really hard. Um, so I did take it the second time. I think I moved up two points, which was probably the minimum I could have gotten that I needed to what, go I mean, I remember when you were doing that, and, and the thing with the MCAT that's so crazy is that the spread is so so tight. Yes. It's like every point is just dying to get. Yeah, I mean, like, it's... I came at the top MCAT. Like, our buddy, uh, our, med, our roommate in uh, college, Lance Dasher, Lance. got a 36. And I was like, oh, never, heard of, never heard of that. And I don't think he studied for it, right? So the rest of us are kind of struggling or hoping to get around a 30. You know, it's a solid number that you feel like, hey, I'm, I'm going to get in somewhere with that. So Augusta, it's the, I mean, is it called like the state school kind of? Yeah, or? I mean, it's changed names. I think it's now the Georgia Health Regents, but it was called the Medical College of Georgia. And I know that you had a good group of friends there. I mean, I've spoken on this podcast before that, that I look back very fondly at law school. I had a great group of friends. I was in Athens, probably treated it a little too much like a, an extension of, of, of undergrad, but whatever. I look back on it very fondly. You had a good time in Augusta, too, with I, your friends. It's I in, did. In, I made a medical school. I made a really good group of friends who I'm still close with. I have a you know, chat group, and we still try to get together and hang out. Um, <clears throat> I think you and I were talking about this earlier. Not knowing it, but looking back, I was very lucky I was in Augusta um, because, well, I mean, you were still in Athens. I had friends who were still in Athens, and now there is a branch of the medical school in Athens, I would have not done well. You know, too many distractions. I, too many distractions. It's just been too easy to be like, oh, let me go out tonight. I'll, I'll deal. I'll do this tomorrow. And there wasn't. I mean, there was a few bars and restaurants, and we had fun after tests, but it wasn't 
you were certainly away enough that when it was time to study, you could study. And it was also before, you know, cell phones, all these kinds of things. So I could go to a coffee shop and, or a library and get my work done, which I think now with my distractedness, I'd be staring at my phone constantly. You'd be looking, on the dog vent. I'd be looking at the dog vent or, you know, WhatsApp. It'd, it'd be terrible. You're such a spaz. You wouldn't yeah. be able to keep yourself no, without awful. looking at it. But you did work. I mean, that's, I, I, I teased in the beginning that you caddied at, a, at Augusta National, and that's when you did that. I did, yeah. So I did it as a second year and a fourth year. Um, and you kind of quickly learned, I don't know how it was in law school, I hate to say this, but you didn't have to be in class to get all the information. Um, uh, we had to be in class. So we have we had a note-taking service. So literally someone would transcribe the entire lecture, you know, word for word. And so I kind of looked, we kind of looked at it, that's just one more source. That was our textbooks, we used those notes. So after my first semester, I was like, you know, I could do something different. And because the thing with caddying there, so we had part-time caddies, they have full-time caddies, that's the what real job is. Um, but you couldn't be like, hey, I'm, I have class from eight to noon, I'm available. After that, you have to mark off the full day because the way it works is you show up at, I think, eight, you find out whose bag you have, and you have to wait till they're ready to go. So they could be flying on a plane, and they might want to go hit balls for two hours, they might want to go have lunch, and you just have to sit there and wait until they're ready to go. And they're in the ready, yeah. And then as many holes as they want to play, you have to catch. Yeah, maybe do two loops of a day. Uh, two loops, and sometimes the par, you know, three course in there, so. Well, I do want to talk, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stop you on that, because I do want to spend some time on that, um, but I want to, I want to, the one thing I remember about you being in Augusta, when we came up to go to the, to go to the Masters, actually, and you took us one of your cadaver labs. And I think it was me, it was our friend Jason, our friend Andy. And uh, I'll be honest, man, I walked in that door, I smelt that formaldehyde, and I I turned around. Yeah. So I think actually we were going to Georgia, South Carolina football game, which I didn't make it to, which is a different story. Oh, was that that? Was that yeah, that it was weekend? in the fall. Oh, okay. okay. Um, Either way, that, I knew we yeah, were taking anatomy that first fall. Um, so that's, you know... That's all you hear about heading to med school. Now, that's your first. That's your first. That is first semester. First semester. Yeah. And what it like set the stage because it it it, it blew my mind. So it's interesting because you, you get a group like so. I can't remember exactly how many were in my class. I'd say maybe two hundred students. So you're in groups of four, but there's two groups of four. So eight people actually share a cadaver, and so you're two. And this is a, a body it, that was donated so the, to science. So, yeah. So someone I don't know why someone. I guess good for them. Thank God someone does it. But like when you walk in their day one, they give you a little information about them, not the details. So we actually, when we were all done with the cadaver labs and there, there's actually a ceremony to uh, cremate them, bury them, you actually learn a little bit more about, oh, wow. the, about them. You didn't learn their names. Or you spend the whole semester with the cadaver? The whole first semester. Yep. And so day one, I mean, it, it's just a passed out bodies in there. You know, looks as can be before we start doing it. Do you lose some students on that first day? The class. So I do remember actually on my interview, they took us in there. And one of the girls I was with fainted and hit the ground, which with my history, it's pretty amazing that, you know, seeing someone else. You said that. it, not me. But yeah, we'll go with that different story. Um, but yeah, so that was, um, and I think our day one, someone else kind of did as well, because there is a very, they're embalmed. It's a very strong smell. You have to keep embalming because they dry out. So they're literally like in, you know, those body bags and they're sitting on a metal gurney. And we have access to the lab 24-7. So the only time I was ever like kind of weirded out, I was like, oh, 2 o'clock, I'm like, I think I need to go study. And you're sitting there in this room with like 60 dead bodies at night. You're kind of like, all right, I'm weirding myself. I need, I need to get out of here. Yeah, dude. But, uh, more power yeah, to you. Yeah, but throughout that semester, you're dissecting deeper and deeper into the body until 
you know, I guess once, you, once you've done that, you're, you're kind of, you know, over whatever fears one might have of the human body. And yeah, I mean, it's different than because there's no blood. It's, so it's not as it's different than the first time you actually are in a trauma or surgery. It's certainly cleaner yeah. um, than that. But it's, it's definitely a unique experience. And so you had mentioned that residency after medical school. And so is the whole time in medical school, you're kind of building up to getting placed in the type of a post medical school residency that you want? How does that work? Yeah. So, so the first two years are academics. I mean, you are not in the hospital other than like some introductory courses to see stuff, right? You're taking anatomy, you're doing some basic sciences again. So you're doing biochemistry again, microbiology again, uh, pathology, and then doing each of the body systems. So the first two years, it's really just clinical. And then you have to, we have three steps to get your, um, medical license called the USMLE. So the first one's called step one. You take that after your second year of medical school. Step two, you usually take during your fourth year. And then step three is after your first year of residency. And each one gets easier. That's good. So they always say, step one, you need two months to study for. Step two, two weeks. And step three, bring a number two pencil. Um, and so step one score is actually almost like a weed out test. Again, like your MCAT or your LSAT that grade, that score you get there really depends on your residency because when you decide to specialize, certain specialties are more competitive to get a spot when you apply. So at what point did you say, you know, sports medicine, orthopedics, I'm going to, I'm going to shoot for the, cause I, I know that you've told me in the past, it's a pretty competitive field to try to get it into. is. And so I didn't know that again. Um, when I <laughs> never going to do no, your homework, no, man. I really maybe, did. Maybe it, it, I think ignorance is bliss with you. That's it's kind of funny when you interview med school, they really want to know, like, you know what you're getting into. And I think I must've played off. That. I thought I did. And I didn't. Well, your interview is a whole nother story in of itself. No, we, so. we'll leave that one out. Um, but so, um, it wasn't after I saw the one do orthopedics. So like, Hey, you know, this is one of the more competitive ones to get. And so you're going to need good grades. You're going to need, um, a good USMLE score. And then we eventually you do rotation. So like I said, the first two years are in the classroom. Well, years three and four are in the hospital. Year three, everybody has to take certain things. You do like three months of internal medicine, six weeks of pediatrics, six weeks of a surgery rotation, six weeks in the ER, I think psychiatry for six weeks, and then some specialty. And then after that year, that's when you're supposed to kind of have an idea what you want to do. And so your fourth year, for example, like I want to do orthopedics, I was then able to do a few way, away rotations where you can actually leave your medical school and do six weeks, no, sorry, a month at different places where you think you may want to end up. Yeah, you so, went to Athens for a, for a time. Well, that was my third year. I did medicine in Athens, but I went to Charleston for a month where I ended up matching and did orthopedics. I was at Emory for a month. But some people would go out to like California if that's where they thought they wanted to be. So yeah, you ended up having, you, you matched in... Charleston. Yeah. Uh, how similar is residency in real life as we see on TV and Grey's Anatomy and the like? Not as cool. Not as cool? Not as cool. T TV is cooler? A, a lot. Yeah. Less drama, more work. Um, I was married, so I, you know, let, less of all that up. But what, what is the, the schedule? I mean, yeah. you know, everybody here is just, it's just, you know, sun up to sundown, sleep sure. at the hospital. Yeah. So kind of take a step back real quick. So we talk about the matching real quick. I'll, I'll just go back to, to uh, circle back. So you have to declare what you want to do. You go on, you, think you apply, you hopefully get interviews. And then after you interview, you rank where you want to be. And all those programs rank who they want. 
And if the computer matches you up, is this like present day Tinder where you yeah. got you know, yeah, to swipe, swipe left? You have to swipe. <laughs> swipe left. That's a really good analogy, but you don't know it. So like three days before match day, you get an email to let you know if you matched because you might not match and you can mismatch, Boy, which, that's... which means you have to enter something called the scramble and hope there's a spot and something for you to get. Boy. And then for your match, you get called on stage and you open an envelope in front of your whole class and it says where you're going. Really? Yeah. So you could have, I mean, you could, you could be totally disappointed in front of everybody. There was a like, lot of that both ways. Wow. Yeah. They make a public viewing of all of public, that. Public, public big, yeah. And, and then once you do your residency, you're not done yet. You, you, you did a fellowship out in Boulder. I did. And that's, um, a, that's like a subspecialty, get, drilling down even more? Correct. Um, but the residency was definitely hard. So... Um, and they keep changing it. So when I first started, we were the first year that they had what's called an 80-hour work week, which was better than it was supposed to be before. So 80-hour max, like cap. Max. They're supposed to max us out at eight-hour work week, and they're supposed to max us out at 36 hours in a row. <laughs> um, what, is, what does that mean, 36 in a row? I mean, you got to sleep and eat. Like So what? after that, you could, right? So you were allowed to be there, you know, come in the morning at 6 a.m., work all day, work there all night, and stay the next day till noon. However, my attendings were basically like a don't ask, don't tell. We don't want to know that you were the person on call last night. So they keep want going. to keep going. Keep going. Because it's it safe to have doctors that are sleep deprived you know, at the hospital? So the way I would look at it is we're not the ones making the final decisions. I mean, like, residents not supposed to be operating by themselves, right? So, like, if I have to go to the OR, like, I'd go to the ER and take care of trauma. But if someone had to go to the OR... The attending is supposed to come in at that time. So we might get it started, but we were not ever supposed to operate by ourselves. So I'm not gonna say that never happened for certain instances. Um, but no, I don't I don't think it's the best idea. I really felt like the nights were fine, it's the next day. Is it kind of like hazing, like getting through the next stage of the process? Yeah, like putting, I mean put you know, the old guard would say we had to put our time in, we had to do this, you gotta do it too. Yeah, my my attendings in Charleston definitely had that attitude. It was almost like a us versus them type of thing. And, you know, I remember being hazed one time, uh, not having a belt in clinic. So the doctor made me wear a toilet paper belt because I was, you know, inappropriate. I didn't wear a belt to his clinic. Do you have a picture of you in a toilet paper I belt? Toilet paper, uh, I imagine, yeah. doesn't hold scrubs up very well. No, this was at the V. Well, that was the thing. You couldn't wear scrubs, you know, and, and nowadays I wear scrubs all the time, but they were definitely more like, you know, toilet don't, paper don't look like you were on call the night before. Shave in the morning before, you know, in, your, in the call room and put a shirt and khakis on and be ready in the morning to present. Fellowship was definitely easier because I didn't have that call. Like we you talked were, about. And when you're out there, you were working with the sports, different sports yeah. teams. So, so and, and you've had different experiences on the way. So let, let's try the, let's, let's add the sports angle to this. Yeah. Um, your role is like a team doctor. So I'll even go, so I'll take a step back again. Like I was talking about matching, picking your, um, Specialty, do you want to do orthopedics or cardiology or dermatology? Well, with orthopedics, they're subspecialties. And so I think it numbers about 85% of orthopedics do a fellowship. And so you can subspecialize in sports medicine, which really means minimally invasive arthroscopic surgery, typically of the knee or shoulder, ankle, injuries that you know could be caused by sports, but not always. But you can go into spine surgery, joint replacement, uh, oncology, um, pediatrics, hand or foot and ankle. So if you want it that extra special, then you do an extra one year. And it's the same kind of thing where you do have to match again and go interview places. Um, but it's not as, it's not as cutthroat. Like my, my year of fellowship, my attendings treated, because you graduated, you're, you're a doctor, you've had to 
actually pass another boards. And I remember you kind of looked at it, not totally this way, but like, let's go to a different part of the country and go to a cool town. A hundred percent. I think, you know, when I got into Boulder, as a, I got offered a spot and they said, you have 24 hours to tell us yes or no. And I actually had more interviews I was supposed to go do, I think in San Diego and a few other places. But I was married. We had Scarif one year. Yes, right away. She was. I mean, she thought one year in Colorado would be a great experience. You know, um, I, you know, she, poor Kara had a one-year-old and no friends and had to stay home most of the time while I was working. And it was busy, but it was different because, like you're saying, we covered sports teams. So we covered the University of Colorado and we covered um, DU and the hockey team in Denver. And so, where I, whereas residency, I was in the hospital late night for call. I was doing a lot more covering sporting events or going to the training room after their practice and waiting. So there was a lot of late evenings, but not overnight kind of thing. So we are a sporting event. Injury happens on the field. Are you the guy that runs out there to tend to the player? So I had one unique experience with this, which was my first or maybe second hockey game. My attending wasn't there. So he's like, nothing ever happens. You know, you're fine. Well, the goalie took a skate to the back of his calf and there was just blood all over the ice. And so the ref like motions me to come on the ice and I'm wearing like nice clothes and regular shoes and I'm slipping everywhere. And when well, I try to- a first time doctor. Oh, over so when I try to get to the goalie to help, I actually slide into him. He's like, all right, cut and bleeding. Like now I they fall call hit him. for you. Yeah. Um, so that was like the only time I had to like go out of the ice with, with the- uh, Football, you know, the trainers usually run the field first and then the motion and, you know, you always see the doctor, you know, check, check the knee and all the stuff on the field. Charlie thinks more for show. It's like, can you put weight on that? Yes, sir. Let's get you to the right. sideline, to the tent and do more of a real exam. Right. Right. So you finally get through all this, this, this 10 plus years, you get a job back in Atlanta at Resurgence, which is, you know, the top of the top in terms of ortho practices here. So what's life now like as a practicing physician and a surgeon? Yeah. I mean, your, your life, you mean, you know, once you, so probably simple, like when you first start law, like you're a junior partner. So when I first started, I was, you know, not a partner. I had two years of being a salaried physician from a surgeon's. And basically those two years, you have to kind of show that you're going to be productive. And after two years, you get either offered partnership or this isn't going to work out, go somewhere else. Once you're a partner it's, it's kind of like, at least our group's structured, it's eat what you kill. So how hard I want to work and how many hours I want to be there, it, it kind of depends on me. Um, you know, probably compared to some of my older colleagues, I care more about making my kids sporting events. And so I'm, I'm not taking extra shifts or putting on one extra surgery in the day. I want to make it to a soccer game and baseball games and you know, dance yeah, and all good, stuff. Good I mean, you. it's all about that balance. Yeah, I, I mean, mean, we talk about it all the time that there, there, there'll be plenty of time if you want in ten years, fifteen years to put those extra hours in. But these kids are only going to be here for yeah. a finite period of time. And their their football game, their soccer games, their baseball games. Like you got to be there. Yeah, I'm going to miss enough things that are out of my control because I do still have to take call. Um, I mean, my my call's pretty easy. I'm not at Grady or one of these places where there's just massive traumas coming in. So it's more of a community hospital where it's bread and butter, orthopedics, hip fractures, ankle fractures, not usually stop what I'm doing in my day and rush in kind of thing. Like life-threatening type yeah, of Yeah, it's usually, okay, we'll, we'll put them in the hospital tonight. We'll, we'll see this tomorrow. But there's definitely times on the weekends where if I have a busy call weekend, you know, cares with the kids and I'm in the hospital all day and, you know, and she's very understanding and kind of new, you know, I think there's many times people asked her when we were dating, you know, do you really want to be a doctor's wife? Because 
it can be a pain in the ass for yeah, you. This, this, this is what comes yeah. along with it. Yeah. Uh, so one of our mutual friends, Jason Mullen, you know, he spends a lot of time in the operating room with his job. And he's always talking about like music selections and the way, you know, the, the, the surgeons kind of handle the OR. Like what, what, like, what is your music go to? Like set the stage of the room, like walk us through a surgery. So I definitely want music. Um, like today I had, I think six surgeries in one of the cases, the music wasn't working and then it's just, that's unacceptable. I don't have to talk that much. Right. Cause then, you know, you have to talk to the nurses and makes, they say, yeah, just make small noise. Talk yeah. They can make so small I definitely talk. want music. Um, typically I will pick the music every once in a while. I get tired of making that selection and I'll tell a nurse play, play something that you want to hear today. Um, long as you know. we talking like heavy metal, Foo Fighters, grunge. So I do. Listen, so, so I think today I did a mixture. Uh, I think one case I played through Maxim Radio app, um, Lithium, which is '90s grunge. I did an old hip hop barbecue, which is '90s, uh, mostly Dr. Dre kind of uh, rap from there. Sounds like a fun um, OR. So uh, if if we had one of your nurses here on the podcast, and we we asked one of them to describe like your your style in the OR, like operating or just kind of y- your vibe. How do you think they would describe you? So I think you'll be surprised to hear this, but I think they will tell you I'm one of the more laid back surgeons. I'm, I'm not angry and, and surgeons have a bad reputation. Some of it's deserved. I have partners and I've been there and they're just sort of angry the whole time. And, and I get it's intense, but they take it out on everybody else in the room. And I just don't do that. If I'm mad, it's usually I'm mad at myself. I'm never going to yell at a nurse, um, yell at the anesthesiologist. And that happens. And I think it's, it's just never been how I want to be. You know, I want people who want to work with me because I feel like, you know, they, they all have a job that's all important to help take care of the patient. And although I'm ultimately responsible, everybody's participating in there. And I think it shouldn't be this good, rough, good, but rough yeah, good for you. Uh, keep, keep that, keep that perspective up and that approach up. Uh, it's a much better way to live life, by the way. Um, you do ACL repairs all the time. You do, you know, uh, Tommy John type stuff. Um, can you tell us like Acuna's injury? Let's, let's, let's talk about him for a minute. I mean, what, what, what injury did he have? What surgery did he go through? And when are we going to see him back on the sure. field? So, you know, he tore his anterior cruciate ligament, which, um, so in, in your knee, there's four main ligaments. We call the ACL, the PCL, and those actually like, in the center of your knee form a cross. So that's why they're called the cruciate. So the ACL and PCL actually cross over each other and form an X. And then on the outside of your knee, you have what's called the MC and the LCL. Well, the ACL and PCL are rotational stability. So you can tear your ACL. You could run in a straight line. You could go up and down the stairs, walk, ride a bike. You know, you don't, you would never know your ACL is torn. If you try to cut, pivot, jump, your knee would buckle and you would have this feeling of knee slipping. So, and that's typically what happens. You know, it's interesting because we'll see female athletes will tear their ACLs five times more likely than males from non-contact injuries. So it's soccer players, tennis players where their knee buckles. And there's multiple reasons that they do that. And, but that's kind of what Acuna did, right? He jumped in the air. And if you watch it, you actually see he landed on a very straight leg. Um, So his knee, you sh- when you jump, you kind of want your knee to have a bend to it to absorb that shock. And he landed on a straight leg, and his knee went, it was called valgus, like like a knock-kneed position. And that tiny ligament, I mean, it's it's eight millimeters thickness, it, it tears. And it bleeds and it swells. But people are always confused because you'll see players walk off the field and say, oh, it can't be that bad. Um, but he can't get back to doing what he needs to do without 
you know, with the torn ACL. So they're projecting he comes back maybe May, which is a little less than a year from when it happens, which is incredible. I mean, NFL running backs takes them forever and a day. Compare his like rehab versus if someone like me yeah. goes and gets hurt. Sure. So that's a great question. So when we when we when you tear your ACL, you can't we're doing some things now to fix it, but typically we, we reconstruct it, meaning we have to replace it. With a younger athlete, a professional athlete, um, you're going to use your own tissue. So you're going to take either two of your hamstring tendons and flip them over and make a graft, or a piece of your kneecap with the patella tendon, or even now your quadricep. Versus if I tear my, but this doesn't happen, the next week we're going skiing together. If I tear my ACL doing that, I'm going to use a cadaver, right? Someone who's passed away, it's sterilized. It's just an easier recovery, less painful, but maybe not as strong. But the other issue you bring up is we have jobs and families. Sports isn't our career. So we might get into a physical therapist's office once, twice a week if we're lucky for an hour, and they spend a little time with us on the bike and say, go do these exercises. Someone like Acuna has the best trainers and therapists working with them you know, every day because the whole issue with getting back from this injury actually isn't healing the surgery. It's getting your quadricep and hamstring muscles back. They really have to be like crazy. Yeah. Um, so we usually, there's a thing called a biodex testing where you can test the strength side by side. And you want to have at least 85% equal strength in your injured leg compared to your non-injured leg before you even consider letting someone come back to cut and pivot. And I think you you'll, wouldn't be surprised if we see a Cunha... Uh, hit a little bit, DH a little bit between, you know, before he gets on the field. Um, but they're going to see him go through a bunch of tests, simulated uh, situations before he'd get out there because worst case scenario, um, you know, you know, being George football, but someone like Don Blaylock, you tear your graft in the same knee immediately. And th- that's a really bad situation to happen. Well, as you know, we're World Series champs. Yep. I don't know if you remember that. I've heard something about that. Uh, and we need our center fielder. Uh, actually, I think he's a right fielder. We need our right fielder back. Um, I think I'm with you. Probably DH first a little bit, but um, I think by, you know, by May we'll get him back. Now, yeah. now you mentioned, or maybe I mentioned, Tommy John surgery. Like, what makes James Andrews the wizard that he is? Yeah. Is it all just reputation, or has he just got hands that God touched and kissed and said, you can heal these, these injuries. So I think it's, it's actually a, but so Tommy Johns is a very unique surgery, right? I mean, the only people who are really getting that are pictures. So there's only a few people or a few surgeons, I say, who do it enough that you'd want to go there. Right. So I did Tommy Johns as a fellow, but if I had a guy come to my office who need Tommy Johns, I'd say, you know what? I haven't done one in a while because I, it's just not that common. And so you're going to go to a James Andrews. You're going to go to a Neil L. Trash, who, who's on the West Coast, who just get all those baseball players. Because um, it's just not a common injury. ACLs happen all the time, right? I mean, people tear it playing tennis and skiing and basketball. So even though we see these big athletes get it, the regular weekend warriors get it too. You and I are not going to tear our UCL ligament and need a um, – Tommy John's or, you know, it just doesn't happen. So I think, you know, I think his particular situation um, for Andrews or some of these big sports guys, they kind of got in a situation where they took care of one athlete and it went well. Him, yeah. And, you know, and he kind of jumped on it. Some of these celebrity lawyers, it's the same thing. Like they get hooked up with one athlete and, and then they just, they're in, right? Yeah. And so it becomes referral. That, yeah. That's cool. All right. Well, I don't want to cut you off on your medicine talk because it's fascinating. We could do the whole hour on it. 
but it is Masters Week, yep. and that is both that is a passion of both of us, a lot of our friends. So I, I do want to to shift gears because for me, it's my favorite sporting event of the year. It's amazing. Now, I think we used to talk about that whole week is the best sporting week, right? Usually the uh, Final Four is the weekend before. If it wasn't a strike, baseball would be starting at the exact same time and then the Masters. It's, it's amazing. So I think baseball is starting. The, the It is. I think the opening is the seventh but, now. But you're right. right. I mean, generally, it's it's that whole week. This, you know, the, the weather turns, baseball, Masters, like it doesn't get any better. Um, so like I said, you, you've you been, you know, the caddy, the player, the spectator. Um, I don't know where you want to start. Maybe we'll start with caddy. Uh, like – just talk about that experience, like how you got the job, some stories. Take it however you yeah. want. So, the you know, I know y'all call them like 1L, 2L, I think is that when you're in law school. We just call them first year, second year med students. So some of the guys who are a year above us, I don't know how they found out, but they had a few of them had caddied and just kind of gave us the information. And so we reached out. I think his name was actually Don Masters, who was the caddy master at the time. And what they did was you first thing you came in and they didn't let you come to Augusta National. They met us off site and you took a written test on the, just kind of the rules of golf. And then they took us to an off site golf course called the uh, River Club to putt. And I mean, I know I can't putt. Wait, you had to be a good putter to get a job? You had to read the green. Had to read the green. They have to be a good putter, right? I would have not gotten the job. How do they teach you to read those greens? I mean, you brought with you this this green book, which is which is pretty damn neat, the yardage book. Yeah. Um, so, how do they teach you how to do that? So after, if you passed that day at the River Club, then you got to actually come to Augusta. And that was like, after having gone there, so like I think we talked about earlier, maybe we didn't, my grandparents uh, who lived in South Carolina had master's badges from like the 60s forever. And back when it was easy to get. And so they'd always give my dad and I, you know, like, Thursday or Friday to go. I think my grandfather only liked to go on Saturday. And a lot of times I'd go back on Sunday with my dad and my uncle. And so once I quote unquote passed the test to get to go to Augusta, I remember we were in the, they put us on a golf cart and we kind of cut through the woods and came out of the woods onto like one fairway. And like the smile on my face was like as big as ever. I just like couldn't believe. I was like, even if I don't get this job, this is this is insane. Amount, Very right? cool. I mean, who, who, who's, who on earth can do yeah, something like that? It was nuts. So back to this, pa- is it a pass fail test? Um, no, I think there was, there was a minimum score that you had to get. And then honestly, like the putting the first day, it was, you know, better make sure it breaks left. I mean, you know, if you, it was pretty simple for that day. When we went to the Augusta, they gave us a ball and a putter and they told us the only thing we're going to tell you is race creeks over here and there are greens, greens break towards race Creek. And you had to kind of go make some reads and we got to putt and, you know, who's watching you? Who's like, who's standing over and grading this? So there was a guy named Don Masters. He was the caddy master. And I, um, so at the time I went out, there were two other guys who were really good friends from med school. Uh, Sam Shrilicki, he's a, he was a pro tennis player before he came to med school. And my uh, other friend, Hardy Gordon, who's uh, played football at Georgia. So the three of us were out there and, you know, just putting these greens. And I think they took us through like one through nine. You know, we didn't get to hit any balls other than, you know, putting there. And at the end of the day, I mean, they sat down. They're like, "Okay, you, you, you got the you, job." Yeah, you, you you passed enough. So, to who, be who's out the there. most famous person you caddied for while you were out there? So the so whose bag I actually had, um, so I had Tom Delay, who at the time was Speaker of the House. We were in Jeb Bush's group, who my friend Hardy actually had, but he was the governor. And this guy's good tippers or what? 
No, those two were terrible tippers. What? Those two are all. Well, that's actually, so, so do can guests tip or does the so, member have to? So they're not supposed to. Um, the member's supposed to tip, but they always should. So what's, what's, a, like, what's a good tip you got when you're out there? Did you be like, okay, that, that yeah. guy was. So to kind of go back, so we talked about the full-time tad- caddies and the part-time caddies. So full-time caddies got first choice of the day. There's a lottery in the morning for the caddies. They draw the number out of the hat, and they knew who was coming in, and they knew who tipped. These were old-school Augusta people. Old. Yeah, I mean, a lot of these guys would like go to Augusta, and then in the summer they would go work at the Drow. And this is all they did was caddy. So they would pick who they want. And then if there was overflow, then it would come to the part time caddies. Unless there was like a politician or someone coming in, because most of those caddies had a, rec- had a, had a record, it's been a little time in prison. Right. So they would ask the med students, you know, if the FBI does a uh, search on you, is everything going to be okay? So that's when we got like. Jeb Bush, or I think George Bush came in there one time, and other you know med students took them. Um, I think we got a hundred dollars standard for eighteen holes, and then whatever tip was on top of that. Would they would they let y'all in the clubhouse and the grounds, or were you just come in, grab a bag, do your thing, and leave? So only if someone asked you to go somewhere. So we cannot like go into the clubhouse. I went to a few of the cabins. Like if someone's like, "Hey, I've, I'm out of balls, can you go? I'm in Butler's cabin. Go grab a you know balls for me." So. That was the only time we could do that. Other than caddy day, we got to go into the uh, so pro shop. So, so caddy day is when you played. Yeah. I'm picturing caddy shack when all these idiot caddies come running out there and just go not, crazy. Not far off. So it's the last day of the year. Uh, I think it's mid-May. Um, sun up to sundown? As early as you can, you know, as soon as we get there about 6.30 in the morning. It was also a lottery when you started. But again, back to those full-time caddies, most of those guys didn't play golf. They, they'd fish and raise creek, which is pretty awesome. So... There was like, you know, guys who owned businesses in Augusta who would caddy out there just so they could get their five rounds before the tournament so they could get a bag to the tournament. And then five rounds between the tournament when the course closed, they could play on caddy. So how many holes would you get in on a caddy day? I think we got got close to 54 a couple of times. I mean, we would, it was mid-May, so we'd get up there at 6.30 in the morning and play till it's pitch black. And you do that two different times? Did so you played times. probably 100, 100 plus holes out there. Probably right. Now, I've seen you be nervous over like a $10 Nassau yeah. at a UGA course. Yeah. Uh, talk about the nerves in that first tee shot on hole one. So I think the first time I played, I actually started on the par three because we had a late tee time. And um, we talked about not the best putter. So I, I think... When we're out there after a while, like you think you know the greens, but it's different telling someone else to do it and actually the speed yourself. And so my friend Sam's like, I bet you'll four putt a hole out here today. I was like, four putt? No one, no one See, does That's that. the easiest bet on creation. Shouldn't happen, right? But fair enough. So can, Wait, can I, can I guess how many holes it took you? Go for it. Uh, I'll set the over under at 2.5 holes. Okay. And I'll take the under. Okay. You'd be a winner. <laughs> Hole one on the par three. Hole one. Now, one point five over. So, so we've had to argue about this. Should have counted. But my first, I hit a tee shot over the green in the back, and I putted it. I mean, I could have chipped it. So he counted that as a as a putt. Now that's that, that's a putt. And, uh, and so, uh, so, 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 so that first. One. Any cool stories from playing? I mean, what's one of your favorite shots you hit? Any any shots that you you know specifically remember? So. Yeah, so we went back. Good so, or bad, by yeah. the way. So the first, I teed off on 10 was because, you know, we had to go back and forth. So my first real hole was on 10. And uh, all week leading up to that, I was playing as much as I could at the range, like just hitting the ball awful. Just grinding. Just, 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 just trying grinding. to feel it. And I was like, I cannot believe I'm playing this bad going to Augusta. 
So my heart rate probably hit about 230. And I hit a three wood that maybe got 10 feet off the ground, but went like 300 yards. And all these guys, I was like, oh, this guy's a player. And I was like, couldn't believe it. And I was like, if you can picture 10, there's that huge bunker right in the middle of fairway. Sure. So I was playing the member's tees, not the master's tees. And my tee shot landed right in front of it. I had a 100-yard sandwich in. You ducked it, didn't you? Shanked it right into the, straight into the woods, sideways. Yeah, that, that's um, tough, man. Yeah. That, that's tough. But my best shot was on 16. I, I played one round from the master's tees. I just had to see what it was like. And it was horrible rounds, too far for me. But... I hit a tee shot on 16 to about three feet and tapped and birdie. And that oh, was, that's and awesome. that, that made awesome. my day. So those rounds, are you drinking? Are you? Yeah. yeah. So they gave us golf carts and they have kegs and barbecue between the ninth and 10th hole for it. And then what does post round look like? Do y'all go do something together or is it just? I mean, it's Augusta, it, so we go to Hooters. <laughs> well, that's, there you go. Yeah. I mean, that sounds like a good, good post round. So you, talking about this year's tournament, uh, You've seen the course a thousand times. You know the greens. You know the shots. Does that give you, do you think, the ability to to predict the way these tournaments play out and who the favorites should be? No. So they're always tinkering the course. I mean, I think what's been fun since catting out there is, like, knowing what the green's going to do. You know, when I see a tee shot, you know, when, when the ball lands, like, what, you know, where, where you want to place your ball. I mean, that's, that's the hardest thing about that course. Like, there's, you know, you watch it, there's, the rough isn't very high. There's not a ton of water. Um, Fairways look fairly yeah. wide and open. Yeah, I mean, some of the, the members, I mean, Masters tee shots are pretty daunting drives. I mean, 18 is a shoot. But the the uh, it's all about what you do on the green or around the green once you get there. And that's what's in, impressive. So to me, although we've seen guys like DJ just overpower the course, you know, with the drive, I really think it's the guys with the short game who can hold up after, you know, for four rounds out there. Do you give any credence or, or do you put put stock in that you have to be able to hit a, a fade versus a draw? I mean, you have, you have to hit a draw. You have to, and, yeah. Yeah, because yes. you know, everything, every hole kind of goes Correct. that way. I mean, do, you, do you think that – because like John Rahm, he doesn't fade the ball. He hits yeah. a, a, a – you know, he kind of cuts it, it off the tee. It does. I mean, there are so many holes where you have to draw – the ball to, to have the best approach. Into yeah, I said that wrong. John Ron doesn't hit a draw. Yes. Um, yes. So, you know, he is, he's number one player in the world. Yep. Although I think your boy Scheffler just, just took him over, but um, that's been the knock on him. Um, do you, do you think that someone that doesn't hit a ball like that, that ball flight can still win? I think it definitely makes it difficult. I mean, if you really have a hard time, you know, drawing that ball. I mean, I think years ago when Tiger Woods was young, he had this book, you know, how I play golf and he had a whole chapter on hole 13, you know, and, the guys who, you know, make that thing a joke can draw it over those trees right along Ray's Creek and give themselves a really approachable wedge in the 13. And if you can't hit that, you're going to end up straight in those woods and it's a, just it comes a different hole. How about the approach that DeChambeau has taken to the course, just taking different sight lines and hitting it over trees and going in different fairways? He needs to be tested for roids because, you know, it's 40 pounds of muscle. Or But yeah, I think you can try to overpower the course. I think it also can put you in a lot of trouble. You know, I think a guy who's never played out there very well, who early on was trying to power the course was Rory. You know, he, big driver when he was first starting and just could not, you, so, you get yourself in trouble out there doing that. So Rory is my sentimental pick to win. Okay. Uh, you know, he has not won a major in eight years. That's, Seems yeah, impossible. Yeah. yeah. Seems impossible. Uh, I think that guy, he just, he just needs, he needs a master's on his resume. And every year I'm like, it's going to be Rory. And then he just doesn't. Yeah. I mean, I, I, 
I picture, I can't remember what year it was, but it was um, nine. I mean, he just ended up by the cabins. I mean, I never saw. A I remember you telling me that you never that. saw a single golf ball end up over there. On yeah. ten, he he hooked it. Yeah, ten, he yeah, hooked it left 10, off like, the tee box. Yes, yeah, on ten. And, and, and you're not like, once did they ever go that never went to find a, a ball at a cabin for any of the members. Speaking of funny spots on the course, what what do you think is the best spot on the course to watch the action? So I like two spots. I, I like the stands on the um, 12th, where you can watch 11 green, all of 12 and 13 tee shot. And I love sitting on the hill below six, where you can watch the approach over your head on the six green and watch 16 uh, green as well. I think those are pretty. That's a pretty fun spot. That's what I was going to say. If you can get there early enough in the day to secure some spots, six is like a party. It's like yeah. you, It's like UGA East out there. It is. Um, you can see six. You can see sixteen. I mean, I remember we would go. You know, me, you, our friend Lawrence would go. Uh, Griff. Uh, we took our wives one yeah. year. We'd go up there and we would buy, we would like scalp tickets coming, people were leaving. Pretty sure you got a putting lesson from a Japanese uh, golf pro on, on, on four. I did. I did. What, what was that all about, you think? I started asking her of some course tips. You did. <laughs> if you were allowed to have a phone back, then you would, you would have had a selfie with her. Just can't have she your had, phone she there. Had some good, she had some good advice. No. But there's nothing better than a practice round day, seeing like who's playing with who and you know, just having fun. Um, we, we, we've sat on 11 before. I mean, there's just so many different places that you can. You and, and I think one of the fun things is, you know, seeing the old school scoreboard, you see that come down and you're waiting to see the number and like a load number pops up and you just hear a roar from somewhere. You're like, so, you know, who just did that? You try to figure on, figure out who's on what hole, who might've just, you know, put up a low score. It's pretty awesome. So it's funny. I just mentioned Lawrence and he happened to just walk in, walk in the room right now. Of course he did. <laughs> uh, and, and when he walks in, he has this kind of music that just starts popping up. We're switching to some Hogan here. The guy has his own walk-up music. Lawrence, welcome, welcome to the house, my friend. It's good to see everybody. You might need to get a little closer to the mic. Closer to the mic here. Can you hear me? Good to see everybody. Thanks uh, for letting me crash no. the party. Yeah. No, so I'm enjoying the conversation. We, we, we dropped your name earlier. Uh, uh, we are talking about a, a little Georgia, South Carolina, Augusta weekend. We didn't uh, get into details as much, yeah, but... Yeah. You weren't ready to wake up. No. <laughs> so, you, so we were literally just talking about our predictions for how the tournament's going to play out. We haven't even gotten to the point where we were... Uh, we haven't named names yet. We haven't named names yet. Uh, I was asking Sean about his, you know, history out there. If it gives him the ability to make these good predictions, um, so let's find out. Yeah. I mean, who, who like break break down the field? Who you like? Yeah. So kind of going back. I mean, we've seen everybody, all type of golfers win this, right? Someone like Mike Weir to Dustin Johnson. I mean, completely different games. But to me, I still like you have to composure and you have to have a short game. So my prediction is Colin Morikawa. Oh, I thought you were going to go Scotty Scheffler. So, I, I, you know, yep. Sean is the king of whoever won the week before. They've got to win this well, week. I mean, he's the hottest golfer on the Yeah, he, right I mean, now. he's playing awesome this year. But so I used to think it was weird, like, how can week to week carry over? But I remember, like, years ago, Jose Maria Othabal, like, coming into Masters was always hot, and he would win. I'm like, okay, I, you know, there is definitely some truth to that momentum carrying you in there. Um, but I like... 
I think Morikawa is just going to have an amazing career. I like his composure, and I think you got to be able to putt. I mean, that's and, and put yourself in good spots around the course. Now, I don't know if he knows the course as well. I mean, that's something you know the guys who've played it so many times know where the pins are going to be with each day and know what spot they want to be in there. But he, he's my guy. Okay. Lawrence, who you got? You know, um, you could go chalk, right, and pick and pick one of the tip, you know, one of the top golfers. You go Scheffler, you go Rom. I think they're going to be in the mix come Sunday. I'm going to go a, a little bit, I wouldn't say deep down the board because it's somebody who won recently, but taking your advice of someone who's in good form lately with the, the mulleted Aussie, Cam Smith. Um, yeah. He has shown that he can win on a big stage of the players. Yeah. Um, he, he's, I think he's finished pretty high at Augusta the last two years, if you want to include 2020 in the, in the COVID tournament. But um, I think he's a, a good choice this week. That'd be pretty solid if he wins players, masters. That's, that's pretty heady stuff. Uh, so I want to go with JT. Um, but I just don't like him enough, no. right? No. I just don't like him enough. Every day, another video comes out that I'm like, yeah. come on, man. But I also have heard him on podcasts and I've heard him in interviews where he's super likable. Um, but I'm not, I, I wouldn't be surprised if he wins. Um, but I'm going Xander. Okay. I'm going Xander. Um, so you think this is his breakthrough because he's never won a major? That's right. So was it last year or two years ago where he was right there and then he went in the water in 16? That was two. Two years ago, because Hideki kind of yeah, ran, ran away. away. So it was two years away. ago. And Zalator, Zoltar yeah. finished yeah. second one. Yeah. So, so uh, you know, when he hit that shot, I was like, oh, my God, he choked, hit in the water. He said time and time again, he hit the perfect, you know, seven iron, six iron, whatever it was, wind kicks up, yeah. blah, 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 whatever. I think he's got the makeup. I think he's got the game. I think he's going to break through. So um, I'd, love, I'd love to see him win. Scheffler, I thought you were going to go with him. I like Scheffler. His interview after winning the the match play last week was awesome. His dad's interview. His dad yeah, said to him, he yeah. said, "You're a better person. You're a better person than a golfer." I'm like, so if he wins, that's and he's awesome. a Texas Longhorn, so yeah, he's keeping the Traub family. There you yeah, go. you guys have any dark horse picks, like way down the board, even more down the board than Cameron Smith? And that's pretty. That before the uh, the the players have been pretty crazy. Um, I know you brought up Rory. I still think Jordan Speed will get it done again. I don't think it's right now, though. I don't, you know, haven't seen it coming out. That's so maybe not a dark horse. I thought you'd go with Patrick Harrington. <laughs> no, I wish it, but I also like Cantley. Tell a quick Patrick story. So, uh, so is Cantley really a dark horse, though? No, Cantley's not a dark horse. You can't win the Tour Championship and be a dark horse. His Vegas odds were not that good right now, though. I was looking earlier. Patrick's uh, your favorite golfer of all time, right? Yes, because that's because. Uh, I worked at the tournament when it was at Sugarloaf, and for NBC, you know, basically calling out what club the players had, and I walked with him, and he was just so nice, approachable, laid back. I think he won that, you know, won that day. So the opposite of Ian Poulter from uh, Sugarloaf. That's right. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. That's um, right. But we're talking about you know players and you know how you relate to my. So my father was huge, you know, huge golfer, loved the Masters, and loved Greg Norman in the '90s. And would wear the Reebok Greg Norman clothes head to toe. I mean, shark hat, shark shirt. Straight like, off the like mannequin. Straight off the yeah, mannequin. Yeah, I just want the mannequin. <laughs> and did, so, he, did he think he was going to be called into play? He didn't wear spikes. Shoes where some people had gusts to do. But he was ready in case the shark was hurt. But we were out there one year. Shark was heading right towards us. And he did not acknowledge my dad at all. And my dad was crushed. I could yeah. just see it in his eyes. 
So yeah. is he no longer a shark fan? That'll that'll be enough to do it. He still liked the clothes. Lawrence, you got a dark horse? Um, More so I don't know if I don't know if I'm willing to go on a limb to pick these two guys to win, but there are a couple dark horses that I feel always play well at Augusta. The big Oz, another big Aussie, Mark Leishman, Leishman. always okay. does well at Augusta. And then another guy coming off recent form, and a Canadian, Corey Connors, I think has done well at Augusta. I don't know if they have the makeup to win at Augusta, uh, but it wouldn't surprise me to see them in the top ten again. And, and I would see Bubba in there. He just he plays that course so well. He's and he's playing pretty good golf as well right now. Where do you put Bubba's shot in sudden death to win the was it 2010 Masters? Where's that rank in all time golf shot history? The huge hook out of the pine straw. I mean, you watch it on TV. And you think, how's that possible? And he acted like it was no. The, no the Google Earth overhead yeah. shot to this day yeah. is just insane to watch that that hook that he hit. I think we went the following year and we actually went to the, they had the yeah, spot had marked, it, right? And you actually yeah. go into the woods, yeah. into the pine straw, so, and you're so like. So they have a spot for that. And then Phil shot on 13 between the two pine trees. They, they yeah. put a little pink flag. I mean, so those, I think we've hit shots like that before. It just yeah. wasn't intentional. So I was going to say that. With the fill shot, too. Like, in my mind, the most iconic shots. And the other Masters, why it's so iconic is because we know all the holes. They yep. play it every year. You see it on TV. You just you just can picture all the players being there. Bubba's shot, fill out of the straw, and then um, Tiger's chipping on 16. Right? I mean, I, I can't go back to the Jack Nicholas days. I'm sure they had fantastic – um, but I just, I'm just not there. Yeah. I mean, I think the other one that was will show is uh, – like I've gone blank. The guy from Larry Mize. You know, the chip, chip into the it. chip on an 11, you know, in front of when Norman should have won it. Um, so speaking of Tiger, he's gonna is he playing? I saw I saw online today that he's listed as in the field. I, I say yes. I say Tiger, one, you know, he loves Augusta. He wants to be a legend out there, which he still is. But like Jack and Arnie, I think you do that by being out there year after year. And and is he physically? I mean, he's I not. He, he's not going to go not, out there. He's if not he going to be competitive. Compete. But I think. I think he know. I think he said that now. I think he's admitted. I'm not going to be the golfer I once was. I mean, but I think this is an event he will play every year, until he hits ceremonial tee shots on one only. So you say he's playing. I say he's playing. I think he's playing too. I think it's going to be crazy. His win in 2019 still gives me chills. I'll watch that that final round yeah. if it's on. Kind of like I watch the Braves game six. Yep. I'll watch UGA's now championship game. If it's on, I'm watching it. Um, Tiger 97 with his dad. Tiger 2019 with his son and his daughter. It's just amazing. Yeah, I mean, right? those, that to me, and then, you know, although he's not getting to play this year, Phil's first win, I think, was 06. You know, I was on the 18th fairway, and I couldn't see his putt, but I saw him jump, and I just saw the crowd go crazy. And I think it's those moments – that make that week. We'll see. We'll see Tiger in twenty what thirty two with Charlie when Charlie wins. Is that about right? That guy can play. <laughs> it may uh, be before then. You know. Lawrence, what's up with Phil not playing? Um, it's a good question. I don't know if it has anything to do with his comments earlier about the Saudi Golf League and you know maybe Augusta National said, "Hey, bud, take a couple weeks off." Yeah, I think they take a um, seat. We'll see you in twenty twenty three. We'll see you in twenty twenty three. Or you know, I think this his, his this the company line is. You know, just physical capabilities right now. He's just not well. I don't know. Um, I'm, I'm much of a much more of a conspiracy theorist these days. Um, I think the Will Smith slap, slap was staged, and I think Phil was told to sit this one out by Augusta National. I, 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 I think 100 percent that Phil was told about. Yeah. yeah, I think I think that the Masters decides that he they didn't like what he said, and he's going to take a knee for a year. Yeah, you know he's gonna he's gonna he's gonna sit out for a year and not come back. Um, so Lawrence, I don't I don't know if you were here when we're talking about our favorite kind of memories of attending. Do you have one that sticks out in your mind? 
I, you know, I enjoyed going down for the, the practice rounds, standing outside, um, and either getting handed practice round passes or paying 50 bucks for them. Now they're going for like a thousand bucks. I was going to say, uh, anybody, anybody look to see what the price was? Uh, uh, Lindsay, Lindsay sent me a text the other day. She was going to buy tickets before she forgot that we were on spring break next week. A thousand bucks for practice round badges. Um, but I just remember, you know, back, it must've been like 2009, 2010, um, there was this shaggy haired dude with a big dip in his lip, just banging balls around the 18th green, using a driver to just kind of do the, the Texas wedge and chipping, you know, must've hit 75 golf balls around the 18th green. We had no idea who this guy was. Turns out it was Jason Duffner. I'll always be a huge Duffner fan because of how hard that guy worked. Uh, and then he went on to, I think, win a PGA. I don't think he ever did much at Augusta, but he was one of the hardest working men we've seen out there. So that same, that same day I was with you. Uh-huh. And remember, Y.E. Yang also stood out to us. He was in fairway 13, 15, banging three woods. So, just banging three woods. And he had taken down Tiger that year. Yeah, uh, that's right. A dup in, uh, in, in uh, Minnesota. Um, so my one other favorite memory, Josh, you, you'll remember this. I don't remember, Sean, if you were there. But we were sitting by the fourth tee box. It was late in the day on a Tuesday. Um, you know, most folks know you can't bring your phone in there. There's really no way of communication. And we're just sitting there, you know, crushing our, uh, domestic beers and, and, you know, finishing probably our 11th or 12th sandwich of the day. And all of a sudden you just start to hear this like buzz coming up around the club and it gets louder and louder. And so we went to one of the marshals and we're like, what's going on here? And they're like, Oh, tiger and, um, and, um, Freddie just teed off on one. And all of a sudden, you just see everybody that's left at Augusta National just starts making their way to the one green, the two tee box. And then by the time they got to four, we were standing there right on the ropes. And Tiger was, you know, four feet from us just talking to his caddy. Um, It's just amazing, like, the energy that that guy brings to the golf course. I saw that buzz around his wife back when (laughs) she was out there, too. Yeah, yeah. No, I like to practice around today because you get – you get, you know, situations like that. Uh, what is your favorite story, you know, as a, as a caddy or as a spectator, something that sticks out to you? So my favorite caddy story. Um, so we were, I was in the group, not caddying for him, but one of my fellow classmates was caddying for Kenneth Cole, um, the clothing designer. He was... There's, a, there's an actual Kenneth Cole person? There's an actual Kenneth Cole, little guy, but amazing golfer. So really, he was probably even the whole round where he head into 15 and he hits a... Not a big guy, so he hits a tee shot a little further back and tells the, the caddy, you know, give me my seven iron, I want to lay up. And we were pretty much told, you know, we're not, they're, they're caddy on the course, whatever they want, you know. They ask for advice to give it, otherwise, you know, he said, the caddy, Brian, goes, you got to go for it. And everyone's like, oh, my God. Come on, come on, Brian. Like, Just shut up. But he's like, give me my seven iron. He's like, you got to go for it. And so he kind of gets louder. Kim goes, like, give me my seven iron. He goes... Calvin Klein would go for it. <laughs> he goes, give me my five wood. And then he, hit it. he chunked it. He hit it on the green. I mean, he put it on the green. Everybody went crazy. That's, was, pretty, awesome. that, that's pretty cool. He, so the tale of tape of Calvin Klein versus Kenneth Cole, I don't even know where to even start with that. Kenneth Cole, I like his you know, shoes, I guess. Yeah, I mean, at the time, all I knew was shoes, and it's a really good golfer. But that was my favorite moment at caddying <laughs> out there. Where I was just like, oh, my gosh. That's you know, pretty awesome. The stories in the caddy house, caddy shack, I can't really – tell as much as what the full-time caddies had to say about the members. So what's, what's your best score out there on the, all the rounds you played? I shot a 90. You shot a 90? That's I pretty good, man. That's pretty good. Yes. Uh, any, like, birdies? Any... I had, out of all the times I played, I had two birdies. I birdied 16, and I birdied 8. 
Eight, par five. Eight uh, is the par five, and then 16, 16 the is a par three, three over water. Good for you. That, only, hey, that, there's only two birdies out there. Um, so 90, 89 would have been better. Yeah. 89 would have been a benchmark breaking 90. I counted it multiple times to make sure that, that I thought it was How many different shots can you remember, like bonehead chip or a missed putt that kept you out from breaking 90? So one shot – so I remember one shot I was amazed. I hit it one shot – that just haunts me. It was number five. I had a great drive. I had a good tee shot in the bunker right next to the green. And I thought I hit the best bunker shot I ever hit. I mean, it went high. It landed softly, rolled past the pin, kept on going, down the first tier, down the second tier, and kept flying down to the fairway. And I went from a position where I'm thinking I'm going to make a sandy par to, I think, tripled it from down there. And it T- just, T- TV doesn't do justice, the hills and the undulation and the slope. Five, of the yeah. Five's the hardest hole in the golf course. It's a long hole, those two bunkers to the left. If you can't, if you have to play out to the right, that second shot's That's really That's actually a great question. We're about out of time, but yeah. but what what do you, what, what both of y'all think of the, is the hardest, call, hole, huh, hardest hole out there? I think five, and I think 11 from the uh, Masters team. I think 11. 11 kills those guys. I, th- I think five's the hardest, and I also think the tee shot on eighteen is probably the most intimidating with it, that tight shoot is. in real life. Like, I mean, I would. I mean, I'd, yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd kill five hundred people when I played it, and I played one time from the Masters tees. I put it straight to the manuals on the left. You know, yeah, it is. Su- it's a. It's such a huge carry. You really can't even get the sense of it until you see it. Well. Good stuff, guys. Sean, thank you for the uh, background on your medical. I, I enjoyed it. And and there's stuff that we didn't talk about that, that we can get to another time. Lawrence, thanks for dropping in, man. Yeah, yeah. man. Appreciate the uh, um, party crashing here. Yeah. So I had I had Xander. You had Colin. you had Colin. You had Cam Smith. All right. Let's see what happens. We'll find out. We'll watch um, it together uh, in Colorado next week. There you go. Love it. All right. Thank you all for listening. It's Masters Week. It's World Series. Defending champion Atlanta Braves kickoff week. It's good stuff, man. Love it. Love it. All right. Until next time, everybody, keep chopping.